Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, continuing our series of sermons through this book, and we come this morning to chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll begin reading at verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. Please give your full attention to God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I've probably mentioned this before, but one of my great disappointments in life is that I have never learned to play the guitar. I grew up in the golden age of classic rock, and I was repeatedly mesmerized by the long, intricate, enthralling electric guitar solos in the midst of those great songs. And I literally, as a young person, I daydreamed about being that guy who walks to the front edge of the stage and enthralls and wows the crowd with a three-minute guitar solo. So, when I had the means, I and very little means, I decided to try to learn, so I took some cheap guitar lessons, bought a cheap guitar, and the lessons were group lessons, so you know they were the cheapest ones I could find, and I tried, and I got frustrated by my lack of progress, and I quit. Then several years later, I decided, got my hopes up, and so I decided this time I'm going to buy a really nice guitar, so hopefully that'll motivate me to try harder, and I'm going to take good, expensive, one-on-one -on -one lessons, and I'm going to learn how to play this guitar, finally. But I couldn't, my fingers are skinny, and I couldn't stand the pain on those steel strings of the guitar, and, and I got frustrated again with my slow progress, and again I quit. 
And so here I am to stage my life and I have totally resigned myself to the fact that I am never going to learn to play the guitar. I'm going to resign myself to just play a mean stereo and a great air guitar whenever that solo comes on. That attitude of resignation probably strikes a chord with you and some of the dreams you had in your life. Some of the things you always thought, yeah, I'm going to do that someday. I'm going to accomplish that. I'm going to learn that. But the dream died somewhere along the line and you've resigned yourself to just make do. That tone of resignation is what's behind the passage that we read just a moment ago. The professor, this hypothetical fictional person, the professor who is presented in the book of Ecclesiastes, in verse 15, he begins this passage by saying, in my vain life I have seen everything. In my empty, my absurd, empty life, I have seen everything. He is speaking with deep regret and resignation. He, as we've seen throughout the course of this study of this book, he has passionately sought meaning and purpose in every possible area of life where he could look. He sought meaning and purpose through knowledge and wisdom, through wealth, through work, through wine, women, and song. He's tried every area of life, and he always keeps coming back to the same conclusion. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all empty. It's all worthless. Last week, as Pastor Owen ended his sermon, he reflected on verse 13, which is just a description of what life is in a fallen world. As the professor looks at life, this vain life that he's been living, he says in verse 13, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Who can make straight what God has made crooked? It's a rhetorical question. He assumes your answer to that question is no one can do that. We live in a crooked world. We live in a world that is not what it was meant to be. God has placed a curse and we have to learn how to live under the curse. What is a meaningful life? What is a purposeful life? Well, he has not found meaning and purpose. And so basically what you have in this section of chapter 7 is how do you survive then? How do you survive under the sun? Now I have to go back again and remind you, and if you've been with us through the entire series, I apologize for beating a dead horse with this, but it is so important that you understand that the book of Ecclesiastes is not interpreted the same way as most other, really any other book of the, of the Bible. As we've been saying, the author, the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, was a genuine believer in the true God, the God of the covenant, Yahweh. He was a true believer. But he uses a unique way of writing in order to teach a lesson to make us thankful for what God has done for us by showing us what life is like under the sun if God has not spoken. Remember, his whole worldview, his whole perspective, his whole theology, his whole philosophy is based on this worldview. Again, he's writing up this hypothetical figure. This, it's uh, Kaholeth is what it is in Hebrew. It means preacher, teacher, I'm calling him the professor. It's one who assembles others to teach. And what he's, this professor, this fictional character that the believing writer is writing in the voice of, he, what he's 
describing is a worldview where God exists. He speaks about God. He talks about fearing God. But this God is far off and distant. And we live under the sun. And his whole worldview is described by that phrase, under the sun. We can only know what we can experience and discern and research under the sun. What is life like? And he ends up with that conclusion. section of Ecclesiastes where he gives a lot of advice. And in this section, it's advice. How do you, he's, I, I can't find any meaning and purpose under the sun. So how do we survive? How do we live? And as we interpret his advice, remember, well, I keep comparing it to Job's friends, the way you interpret the book of Job. Job's friends gave him, they, they came to him to comfort him in all his intense suffering, but they gave him a lot of advice that is true, but a lot of advice that isn't. Because their worldview was off. It was wrong. Their religious views were wrong. They were legalistic. They did not understand grace. They did not understand God's sovereignty. They didn't understand God's purpose. And so the advice that they give to Job, you have to take it with, you have to interpret it carefully. You have to take it in the context that Job's friends had a wrong worldview and a wrong religious view. It's the same way with the professor. His worldview is totally earthly, totally material. God exists, but he has not revealed himself. So if God has not spoken, if God has not entered into history, if God has not revealed himself, how then can we live in this purposeless, vain life under the sun? He gives three words of advice in this passage. First of all, he says, give up on finding justice. Give up on finding fairness. Secondly, he says, give up on holiness, righteousness. Give up on it. And then thirdly, he says, give up on relationships. If you want to survive under the sun without meaning and purpose, you've got to give up on justice, give up on holiness, and give up on relationships. Let's look at the first one. Verse 15, he says, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. He's asking that same basic question that mankind has been asking since the beginning of time. Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? You still find philosophers and religious scholars wrestling with that question. Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Why do good people die young and bad people live long and prosper? That's the question he's asking. You see, we teach our children from the time they're very young that if you obey the rules and do what you're supposed to do, then life should be good. Work hard and you'll get that promotion. Throw the ball to first before the runner gets there and he'll be called out. Study hard, get an A. Do the right things, follow the rules, and life will go well for you. Matter of fact, the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40, it seems to even say this directly. It says, therefore, you shall keep his commandments, God's commandments, and his statutes, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all the time. And there is a real sense in which obedience to God's law leads to a blessed life, but in a crooked, fallen world under the curse, we know that life often doesn't go that way. Sometimes it seems like it never goes that way. I mean, this week we've been wrestling with it. It's not, just not right that a kind, generous, sweet, godly sister like 
Terry Verlinda would be taken so relatively young in her life. And yet, every day we hear about a cruel, murderous tyrant like Vladimir Putin, who is committing atrocities and living long with power and wealth. It's not just, it's not right. Something is very, very crooked under the sun. The teacher, the, the professor here, finds himself in despair as he reflects on that. And there's another place, actually, in the psalm, Psalm 73. It's one of the beauties of that psalm is he wrestles with the same question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And as he wrestled with it, he almost ended up in despair. He says in Psalm 73, verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on to say in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Why do good things happen to these bad people? And why do all these bad things keep happening to me while I keep trying to keep the rules and do what God tells me? If you let that thinking consume your heart and your soul, it'll harden your heart. But the book of Ecclesiastes is always intended to drive us to the rest of Scripture where God has revealed truth, where he has revealed himself, and where he's revealed a plan of salvation to give us hope in this crooked world under the sun. And in his word, in the rest of God's word, what God makes clear is that all of history is being driven by a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation, and a day is coming when perfect justice will be done. Paul tells the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, we know that he is coming back, and when he comes back, everyone will stand before him and have to give an account. Justice will come. Every wrong will be punished. Every wrong will be made right. This crooked world will be made straight again when Christ comes again to finish the plan of redemption that God has revealed to us in his word. You see, the psalmist, he was living in the shadows of the old covenant. He did not yet fully understand who the Messiah would be, who Jesus Christ would be. He did not fully understand everything about the resurrection and the second coming. But yet he had faith in this promise of this promised one who would come to make the crooked world straight again. And so he says in at the end of Psalm 73, beginning in verse 16, he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He went to worship God to hear his word, and he was reminded that what is under the sun is not all that we can know, because God has revealed to us that those who reject him, those who commit atrocities, those who break his law will be punished. He says, truly you have set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away, by utter, swept away utterly by terrors. No one who has ever wronged you will ever go unpunished for it. 
we can live with the injustices that we hear about and see all around the world every day and our generation sees it so much more quickly and so much more clearly than any previous generation because of technology. We are so aware of the crookedness and the atrocities and the injustices of the world. But we can wait with patience. We can endure with patience. We can persevere because Christ is coming again. And judgment will happen. And we do not have to quake in fear because of our sins, because of the ways in which we have harmed others, hurt others, the way we have violated God's law. We don't have to quake in fear if we trust in Jesus Christ, his son. As the psalmist trusted in the coming Christ, and he says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire, be, desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He had hope in the face of judgment because his sins would be covered. And so, that's the rest of the picture. Jesus died and rose again to make everything that is crooked straight, especially those of us who are sinners. The professor then, he, with his limited worldview, is saying give up on finding justice and fairness. Resign yourself to live with the crookedness of the world. And we say no, Christ is coming again. Christ has come, has been raised from the dead with our salvation. He gives it to us freely, and he is coming again to bring perfect justice and to establish a perfect world. Secondly, here's the other 18 through 18. He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Do not be overly wicked. Wait a minute. This is a verse in scripture that says, don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wise. Don't be overly wicked. Be a little bit righteous. It'd be a little bit wicked. This is just one of these great verses. One of the core essential principles of biblical interpretation is that you always interpret any verse or any passage in light of its context. This is a verse you do not want to take out of context. <laughs> and it's, this is one of those places where then there are many interpreters throughout history who have tried to understand the writing of the book of Ecclesiastes as being straightforward advice in the same vein as the book of Proverbs. And this is one of those passages like, I don't know how they handle this. Actually, I did a lot of reading this week of how they try to handle it. But it's very hard to explain this verse if you say this is just straightforward advice where we're supposed to listen exactly to what the Word of God says. This is the professor who has this limited worldview where God has not revealed himself, where all we can know is what's in this fallen world. And what he says here makes sense from that perspective, doesn't it? If what's under the sun is all there is, then the old Greek philosophy of moderation in all things makes a lot of sense. Moderation in all things, including wisdom and righteousness and wickedness. That's the way to go. It's a logical conclusion if being good and following the rules and being righteous does not shield you or protect you from suffering and disappointment and despair. In other words, just go along to get along. 
Find out what the mainstream of your culture is and just ride that mainstream. Don't be too righteous. Don't be a, fanatic, a religious fanatic. And don't be overly wicked. Don't be a criminal. Don't be a rapist. Don't be a drug addict. Because in either extreme, either overly righteous or overly wicked, you're going to make your life really difficult. You're not going to fit into the mainstream of your culture. It really sounds a lot like this carpe diem advice he keeps coming back to, doesn't it? You know, if you want to, want to survive and have a, a decent life under the sun, the professor keeps saying, well, eat a good meal, have some good drink, something good to drink, enjoy your work, and get a good night's rest. You know, basically live this simple, basic life. Keep your head low. Don't be too extreme in your righteousness. Don't be too extreme in your wickedness and just survive until death comes, and when death comes, you're blotted out of existence. That's the worldview under the sun. life, but not too religious, not too righteous, not too radical. And I just want to ask the question, just before we go to the rest of the passage, just to ask the question here, have you done that? Have you settled in your holiness? If you've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and called to follow him, have you reached a place where you say, you know, I'm moderately righteous. I'm good enough. I'm better than everybody around me. You know, my coworkers, my neighbors. I can kind of plateau here and just ride it out. I think a lot of Christians face that temptation. That you get to a place where, you know, you struggle to repent, you struggle to live a godly life, and you just say, okay, I'm going to stop trying so hard now. I've gotten far enough. But that's not what we're called to. That's not discipleship. That's not following Christ. In verse 20, again, the professor sounds like he's quoting Paul from the book of Romans. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Sounds very much like Paul. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he restates it in verse 29. He says the same thing. He says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And, you know, the professor doesn't need revelation from above the sun in order to see that, to understand that. Everyone sins. Everyone is crooked. Everyone is corrupt. Phil Riken, in his sermon on this passage, he says, depravity is the one doctrine of the Christian faith that can be proven empirically. Just spend a week with a toddler and you'll know that we are depraved people. We are all sinners from the time we're born. But unlike Paul, you know, when, when Paul teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there's no one righteous, no, not one. When he says that, he goes on to tell the good news of the gospel. And he goes on, after he's told the good news of the gospel, he goes on and, and encourages us to strive for holiness, to strive for repentance. He says that we should, uh, we should ask people, you know, when we talk to people, only say what is good for building up in Ephesians 4. Only say what gives grace to others in, in Ephesians 4. Strive for holiness, even though we won't get there until the end of this life. But notice that the professor, he doesn't say, try harder, strive for holiness. What he says is, do not take to heart all the few things that people say about you. 
You walk by the room and hear your servant saying bad things about you. Just keep on walking. Don't pay any attention to it. Why? He says, because your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. What's he saying here? Well, first of all, he's pointing like James does to the universal sin. We all sin with our tongue. That's his point. Everyone sins. And so he points to sins of the tongue because that's one that nobody can make a claim that I don't commit that sin. Everybody sins with their tongue. And, but his point isn't you need to be forgiven. You need to be redeemed. You need to be sanctified. You need to be transformed. That's not his point. His, basically what he's saying is everybody does it. You do it. Don't judge your neighbor for gossiping about you. Don't judge your servant for slandering you because you do it to other people. And again, he's teaching this moderate lifestyle. Just accommodate to the mean. Everybody does it. You do it too. Everybody tells white lies. Everybody cheats on their taxes. Everybody breaks the speed limit. Everybody steals from work. That's what he's saying. Just survive. Just keep your head low. Live in this mainstream of culture And that's what happens when you measure your holiness by other people instead of measuring your holiness by God's holiness. But God has spoken. That's what the professor has not realized. God has spoken. And he has said, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. But the good news is he has also provided the means by which we can be holy. That's the good news of the gospel. That you can receive by faith the gift of an alien righteousness, a righteousness that you cannot produce on your own, but belongs to Jesus Christ. His perfect obedience can be accredited to your record so that you stand before God robed in his righteousness so that you are acceptable to God from the time that you put your faith in Christ. You can be righteous. That's the good news of the gospel. And once you have been redeemed, once your sins have been washed away with the blood of Christ, and once you've been given the gift of this righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, the promise is the Holy Spirit is given to you to begin to transform you. And you transform over the course of your life more and more into the image of Christ. And so you don't have to settle for wherever you're at in holiness. No matter how late in life you're redeemed, doesn't matter. Until the day you die, the Holy Spirit will transform you if you've been saved by grace through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14, it says, Jesus by a single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love that way that puts it. We are, have been perfected because we've been given the gift of Christ righteousness by faith, but we are also being sanctified into his image, transformed into his image day by day. That's why Paul describes his discipleship in this way in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. He says, not that Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Saved by grace, but striving for holiness. That's true discipleship. And that comes because God has revealed himself to us by his word, by his spirit, and ultimately in his son. And so, back to the professor's advice. Give up on justice and fairness. Give up on holiness. And the third advice he gives is give up on relationships. We've seen that the professor really hates death because death is what makes everything ultimately 
vain and empty in this life. But there's one thing he mentions here that is more bitter than death. Did you notice that? He says it's verse number 26. Verse 26, he says, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Unless you think he only has one particular woman in mind, he goes on later to clarify, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among these I have not found. And again, he's speaking from his own experience. He's speaking as a man who I think obviously has been unlucky at love. He's not been able to find that Proverbs 31 woman. And so he's bitter. He's been burned by relationships. And what he's trying to say is, if you look for relationships to give you meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life, give it up. Because relationships aren't going to do it. Now, I know it sounds sexist when you read it on the surface, but this is a man talking about how romantic relationships can, can complicate relationships. It's easier to be friends with a guy than to be in a romantic relationship with a woman. And so he's been able to find a guy that he can least trust and hang out with, but he can't find a woman out of a thousand. And that's just the reality. For whether, whether you're a man or a woman, romance always complicates relationships. It's where you get hurt more deeply. And so this actually, I think, is a reason why either Solomon was the author, as many interpreters believe. Solomon was the believing author of this book who wrote about the professor. Or it was written with him as an example because in 1 Kings 11, it says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which makes 1,000 women. And it says every one of them turned his heart towards other gods unlucky at love, failed a thousand times and was not able to find that Proverbs 31 woman. And so he says, in his despair and disillusionment, he says, give up on relationships. Unless you men think that you're being highly complimented here and saying you're better than women, that's not his point. Basically, he's saying that you have one-tenth of one percent chance of being better, you know, than, than a woman. You're one out of a thousand. The professor's search has left him hurt. It's left him cynical. There are so many broken relationships under the sun. The deepest pain that we experience in life is not through disease or broken bones or, or tragedies. The deepest pain we feel are when we trust somebody and they break our heart. When we trust somebody and they hurt us deeply. When we're vulnerable and it does great damage to us. Most of the counseling that I and other pastors and other counselors do is trying to help people deal with the hurt that they've received from the relationships in their lives. And that's just a reality that the professor is seeing under the sun and so he says, give up. Give up on relationships. But God has shown us a way to heal relationships. That's the, the effect of the gospel in the life of a sinner like you and me is it begins to heal relationships. Because Christ teaches us how to truly forgive. How to truly be healed from our, the effect of our own sins and the sins of others against us. Christ teaches us how to have grace-based relationships, not merit-based relationships. In Christ, we can find fulfillment in relationships. So, again, what you see is that the professor is telling us that under the sun, 
You have to give up on the things that are supposed to give us meaning and purpose. Give up on a sense of justice. Give up on a sense of holiness and the achieving of holiness and give up on having fulfilling relationships in life. But God has spoken. That's what the rest of the scriptures tell us. God has spoken through the prophets. He has spoken through the apostles. And he has ultimately spoken to us through his son. God the son took upon human flesh and lived in our midst. And he has told us the way to find justice, holiness, and fulfilling relationships with God and with others. And he has provided the way himself. In the original Matrix movie, there's one of the lesser characters in that movie is called Cypher. And he's part of that team of people that have been delivered from the Matrix. The Matrix is this computer-generated world that's not real. But he has been awakened from that computer-generated world, and he's living in the real world with all the difficulty and struggling that's in the real world. And he's part of this team that are trying to deliver other people from the Matrix. But Cypher is the one on the team who becomes very weary of living in the real world, weary of the struggle. And so he arranges to meet with Agent Smith, who is the devil-like character who represents the computer that's created this matrix. And he meets with him over a meal, and Cypher's intent is to betray his friends, the ones who have been delivered from the matrix, to betray them, and to be delivered himself back into the matrix, because he would rather live in the false world than the real world. And there's one point where he illustrates this in the middle of the meal, where he's holding a piece of of well-cooked steak on his fork and he's marveling at it and he takes a bite of it and he's enjoying it rapturously and he says, you know, I know this isn't real. But, he says, after nine years of being out of the matrix, he says, you know what I realized? Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Put me back in the matrix. You see, he does not have hope in the movie, Neo is the hope. Neo is the Messiah figure. Neo is the one who comes to deliver people from the matrix. In, the real, in this world, in the real world, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one who has entered into this world under the sun to show us a way to be delivered from it. And we must not lose hope in him. God has shown us that there is only one good man out of a thousand, out of a million, out of billions who have ever lived on the face of the planet, there's only one good man, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the second and the last Adam. He lived a perfect life. He offered up that perfect life, that perfect life that never disobeyed in thought, word, and deed. He offered it up as a sacrifice on the cross and bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved. He was punished in our place so that justice is fully done when it comes to our sin. Our sin has been punished at the cross. Justice is served. We celebrate justice. We uphold the law because Christ has fulfilled it and he's paid the penalty for our breaking of it. In Romans chapter 7, Paul paints a very depressing picture of what life is like under the sun for sinners like you and me. And he ends that description. It's, it's a life of being slave, a slave to sin and death. But then at the end of that chapter, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? It's the same question the professor is asking. Who will deliver me from life under the sun? 
this crooked world. Well, that's where the good news comes in in Romans. Because Paul goes on to say, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By faith, we can be considered righteous. And we can be transformed by the power of the word and the spirit into the righteousness of Christ over the course of our lives. And so we have meaning and purpose. We have hope. We will live forever perfected people in a perfect new heavens and new earth face to face with our Redeemer and our God. Blaise Pascal once said, knowing God without knowing our wretchedness, knowing Jesus Christ gives us the balance because he shows us both God and our wretchedness. And I would say also the way of salvation and hope. We do live in a crooked world. And if you don't look above the sun, if you don't listen to God's word from above the sun, you will live and end up in the same place of despair that the professor is expressing here. But the power of sin has been broken. The power of death has been broken. Christ will bring full justice and fairness and all wrongs we made right when he comes again. We are already holy in Christ by faith and we are being transformed into true holiness by the power of his spirit and his word. And we know what it is to experience redeemed, grace-soaked relationships based upon grace, based upon the forgiveness of Christ. We know what it means to be fulfilled in relationships in marriage, in parenting, and in the church because of what Christ has done for us. And finally, just as one brief aside, I no longer identify as a failed guitar player. I'm just waiting for the perfect patience and the eternity to learn how to do it well. <laughs> just one of the small ways in which Christ has restored hope to my life. Let's pray. Father, we come to the table to celebrate hope. We do not live in the darkness and despair, saying vanity of vanity, all is vanities. We once were there, even if we didn't realize it, but our eyes have been opened. You have spoken, you have revealed to us your son, you've given us the gift of faith, and we trust in him. He will bring to completion the work that he began in us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this table where we celebrate the presence of Christ, which is with us today spiritually and which will be with us forever. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.